0: To the Freedom Pact. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. John Viveki. John is an award winning lecturer at the University of Toronto in the departments of psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology. John released a 50 part YouTube series entitled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which was absolutely superb, that looked at a variety of things, including meaning in the modern world. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. It's a great pleasure to be here. Amazing, man. So I think that a great place to start would just be uh, perhaps the view from 30,000 feet. So I watched through your lectures on meaning. And quite frankly, they were so informationally dense that I can't quite believe that they're free. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop a link in um, below for everyone. But I guess kind of for the people tuning in now that might not be familiar with that, how would you best describe the meaning crisis that we're going through? Um, so this, I mean, I'll try to keep this
1: answer short, but it can't be too short. There's sort of two aspects to that. One is sort of, what are the causes of the meaning crisis? That's one way of answering that question, and I'll do that first. But then also, what are the symptoms of it? How is it expressing itself in our culture? So the, 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 the causal notion is born from something like this. Um, the very dynamically self-organizing cognition uh, that makes us adaptively intelligent also makes us perpetually susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive processes. Now, there's a lot of argument and evidence for that. It's in the series, but I'm just gonna take that as an initial premise, right? So the very processes that make us intelligent problem solvers also make us subject to foolishness. Very, There's no domain of life in which we can't fall into self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Um, and what that does is that that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, foolishness, is not only bad in and of itself, but what it tends to do is it tends to erode at the, these fundamental dynamical couplings. That, that intelligence I talked about, it works by sort of dynamically coupling to the world um, and constantly redesigning and refitting itself to the world and when that sense of connectedness to yourself to other people to the world is operating well that's that that you get a sense of meaning in life not the meaning of life which is some metaphysical claim but that your life is inherently meaningful so the more you feel connected to yourself the more you're not sort of at war with yourself you, you, you have a fundamental sense of who and what you are the more you have you know the three loves with other people eros philia agape right the more you can fall in love with the be- with being itself, with reality, the more you have a sense of being connected to what's true and real, um, these all contribute significantly to your meaning. So the foolishness not only is inherently bad because it's self-deceptive and self-destructive, it also comes with the cost that it severs these connections um, because instead of those connections opening you up to the world. The self-deception, self-destruction, sort of closes you off to the world. Now you can think of that's what's happening in an addict. Their, the flexibility of their mind and the options in the world are are sort of shrinking right down. So and and that's and they're losing agency and they're losing connection. They lose their connection to themselves, to other people, to the world, <coughs> etc. And so across cultures and across historical periods, you know, cultures have come up with ecologies of practices for addressing right the self the self-deceptive self destructive patterns of foolishness and reenhancing right those connections of meaning so this these what they produce these ecologies of practices is typically called wisdom the ability to overcome foolishness as opposed to knowledge which is which which overcomes ignorance and to afford meaning as opposed to theory which largely is about affording truth Right. And so wisdom is that process. And it's perennial because our compa- there's no way we can point to and say, look, those people were free from self-deception and self-destructive behavior. They were free from foolishness or look, those people weren't pursuing, you know, connections to themselves, to each other in the world. These are perennial issues. And so there's, right, we, we perennially need to cultivate wisdom. So we need an ecology of practices. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But the thing about that ecology of practices is it needs to be homed. It needs to be situated within a worldview that makes it legitimate, makes sense of it, fits everything together well. Um, and for then, for a lot of historical reasons that I go over in detail in the series, we've lost a worldview that homes wisdom. So if I ask you where to go for information you can tell me the internet blah 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 where to go for knowledge science history blah blah but I've asked you where do you go to be homed for wisdom and you get a deafening silence and so what happens is people people can't stop doing this right it's not it's not an option because who who would you meet that said you know I mean there's some people that are sort of, sort of wrapped up in of a narcissistic nightmare that they might not not answer this but most people if you ask them well do you want to be less foolish and you want your life to be more meaningful they'll say yeah yeah and you'll say well what would you be willing to sacrifice for that And well a lot quite a bit so right there's there's a powerful drive and motivation there without an appropriate worldview or set of institutions or traditions to properly home it now what used to be the home for that were sort of the established religions the world religions But for many people, that's non-viable. And we tried to replace the world religions with pseudo-religious ideologies in the 20th century, and we just drenched the world in blood. And so many people say, no, I don't want that totalitarianism, not good, right? Oh, but the traditional wisdom. So I can't not stop looking for wisdom. I'll do it on my own in an autodidactic, fragmented fashion. Or I'll just pretend that it's not an issue. I'll try and ignore the underlying anxiety, the ennui, the sense that it's I just, like, you know, Hamlet, the time is out of joint. And then, so that's the causes. and But that state leads to, right, a lot of the symptoms. We're seeing increases, especially in affluent areas like Silicon Valley, of suicide, especially child and teen suicide. And these, these are canaries in the mind you have to pay attention to. We see massive increase in, you know, mental health issues, um, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, loneliness is on the rise, right? Opioid, the opioid crisis, addiction, right? Because addiction fits into that. Uh, we're seeing the rise of a lot of pseudo-religious behavior. The the, the the near worship we have of superheroes and we dress up in the costumes and we buy the trinkets and we look at the figurines and all this crazy stuff. Um, but there's also positive sim- uh, there's one other negative symptom we might want to talk about, which is called the virtual exodus. People are turning to the virtual world to try and find that kind of connection that they don't have in the real world. And then there's positive, if not, not not meaning that they're not worthy of critique, but there are what you might call positive symptoms. There's the mindfulness revolution. There's a revival of ancient philosophies like Stoicism. There's the attempt to find in Buddhism. There's an attempt right on right now, Jonathan Peugeot is a great example of it, to revise what I would call the wisdom aspects of christianity and it's no coincidence that he comes from eastern orthodoxy which has a lot of neoplatonism in it um so all of these things are also indications that people are pursuing deeper strategies and so you can see these symptoms everywhere covid has exacerbated it because when when you don't have that sense of being at home in a fundamental way that's called domicide, and the virus has really accelerated that sense of domicide. and so we've seen a lot of mental health issues now spinning out of control um uh you know We've got conspiracies and riots and we have increasing mass shootings and uh, we've got reports of increased domestic violence and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the causes and those are the symptoms. And that's what I mean by the meeting crisis.
0: It's interesting because when I was preparing for this conversation today, I was going around my local park and I was listening to podcast, other podcasts that my guests have been on when I go on my walks. And uh, I saw some geese floating in the local pond. And I was thinking to myself, to the best of my knowledge, these geese uh, not thinking today, how do I live a meaningful life? You know, it yeah. seems to be a, a, a human experience. Um, and then I was thinking to myself about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we, we both are from the Western world. Um, yeah. For me, obviously, in particular, I mean, I, I don't really have to worry about survival needs. You know, I mean, my, my goal is further up the pyramid now. Yeah. And the, the same for, for a lot of the West. I mean, Stephen Pink attacked a lot of this in Enlightenment now. So yeah. I wonder, in terms of the meaning crisis, how does Maslow's hierarchy of needs fit into this? Is this a sort of curse of heading towards self-actualization? Um, so, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy, not to take anything away
1: from Maslow, um, uh, it's basically Aristotle. Uh, and so, uh, right, it's Aristotle's the vegetative soul, the, the moving soul, right? I mean, Maslow refined it in certain ways, but that's where he gets it. And then at the top, you know, be, and what many people don't realize is self-actualization is not the ultimate. Um, and this actually goes to the meaning research that's happening right now. Because uh, people, like, people think that they often equate meaning with purpose. Um, mm-hmm. Purpose is one of the four factors of meaning in life. It's not even the most important factor. Um, intelligibility, what's often called coherence, uh, is very important. Uh, if things are absurd, your life is not meaningful to you. If, you, if you're if you running around in a Kafkaesque Camus novel all the time, uh, you know, it's very hard. Uh, although maybe, maybe, maybe you would disagree. I just finished reading uh, The Plague by Camus, which was very good. Um, there's that, and then there is um, significance. We need to be connected to something that has a value like that's deep or real to us. And then finally, mattering, we need to be connected to something uh, larger than ourselves. And that points to the fact that beyond self-actualization, Maslow at the very end was talking about self-transcendence, right? So self-transcendence is, and that's where you get back to what Aristotle was actually on about, and then how that gets taken up into Neoplatonism. This idea of the, the 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 wisdom is that which gets us to transcend beyond the prison house of egocentrism so that instead of how things matter to us being central and self-actualization is still in that wheelhouse, we turn to how do we matter to something beyond ourselves? How are we connected to something beyond ourselves? And I think that's a very important idea. Now, if you see that, if you see at the top what's going on, you realize it's not icing on the cake, because your capacity for self-transcendence permeates all the way down. It's not like it's it. It's not like it doesn't exist. And this is where Aristotle's better than Maslow because he talks about these layers of the soul or the psyche nested within each other. It's not like self-transcendence is at the top as the icing, right? Because at the very bottom, when you're trying to find water, you have to correct your own mistakes. Sure. You have to realize that you've framed a problem incorrectly. You have to have an insight. You have to be curious. You have to wonder. These are – whenever a system is engaging in self-organizing, self-correction, it's doing some aspect of self-transcendence. Now, it's not doing cosmic self-transcendence, but when you realize, wait, maybe I shouldn't go to the waterhole in the late evening, right? You, you've been framing things. you wait, I can frame this problem – that So this is why I'm so interested in insight. And I think there's a continuum, and I've argued this. There's been convergent arguments from Yaden and from Newberg. I think your most mundane insight is on a continuum with your most self-transcendent experience. So where you're, you're saying, now I've what, – what's ultimately real. But when you have an insight, that little flash – That's like, that's a little, that's a little portent of the flash of enlightenment, right? And that little flash is, I'm a little bit more connected to reality than I was before. I've overcome a bit of self-deception. So, right, it's not... And again, I'm I'm not denying what you're saying, but I'm trying to get you, well, I'm I'm trying to exemplify what I'm talking about. I'm trying to get you to reframe it and not see the self transcendence as the icing on the cake, but as something that is permeated throughout and is just being refined and refined and refined and refined and refined. And what you also see is a slow turning away from needs that are immediately about literally importing that's where we get our word importance from importing things into your body or mattering to you, the survival needs up more and more up into needs of belonging and then right, etc. And it gets more and more broader and it gets more and more oriented on reality and less and less oriented until it finally, I think comes to sort of a completion of fruition in sort of full blown self-transcendence.
0: I was thinking to myself earlier when I was preparing for this, is it a blessing or a curse that we have these meaning structures? I think it's a blessing, um, but I don't, want to deny, I don't want to deny
1: the curseful aspect of it. I um, mean, I think that's why Camus. Um, it, 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 I, t- I take my life slogan is taken from one of the characters in the play who said, "I want to know how to be how to be a saint without God." That's the whole problem I'm up against. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, we have. So, so in the 1950s, there was a revolution in cognitive psychology, cognitive science. Up until then, it had, been dominated, uh, it had been dominated by behaviorism, the idea that what happens is you get a stimulus and then the organism responds, and all the, all the organism is learning to do is associate or pair the stimulus response. Uh, I think behaviorism is one of the few psychological theories that has actually been refuted, Uh, because when you mechanize it, you can mathematically prove that it can't do many functions. But let me just give you a sense of what happened in the cognitive, what's called the cognitive revolution. See, the problem with behaviorism in a nutshell is this. I can say to you, fire, and that's an acoustic signal, right? As a physical thing, you can see the yellow flame. That's a visual thing, very different stimulus. You can smell the smoke, very different stimulus. And yet for all of those, you'll do the same thing. You'll run out of the room. Now, why do those three very different physical things produce the same behavior in you? Because they all mean the same thing to you. You've, you've determined how they're relevant to you. Now, that's not just like, oh well. No, no. Think about this. You face ev- every cognitive agent of varying degrees faces this: the fact that the amount of information that's available to you in the world or in your in, in your long-term memory is vast and overwhelming. And the possible different patterns, sequences of behavior, I can bend this finger, I can bend this finger, I can bend them together, I can can do it, like whoa, right? That's also vast. And yet what you do, right, is you don't respond to sort of the physicality of all that information. You somehow zero in on what matters to you, what's relevant information. You see, and so the fire Right. The, the word fire, the smell of the smoke, and the sight of the flame are all equally relevant to your trying to solve a particular problem of avoiding danger. And so if you didn't have that ability to make meaning, imagine if you had to check everything in terms of its raw physicality. You you would treat everything like like, like the way we do with people, a proper name, you know? So this is Agnes and this is Tom. And after I've learned everything about Agnes, I have to start all over again with Tom, right? And it's like, ah, right? And so like, imagine if you, if you couldn't make categories, if you couldn't group things together in terms of how they're relevant to each other and relevant to you, you wouldn't be able to solve most of your problems. So you have two ways of responding to this. One is you can just be a really stupid creature that reacts just in terms of stimulus response mechanism, perhaps like an ant or something like that, or you can try and grow intelligence. You can try and grow this ability to zero in on relevant information in a very dynamically evolving manner. If if you're committed to the second, you're committed to meaning. And if you're committed to it, and, and, and again, meaning doesn't mean just the meaning of words in your mind. That's a mistake we make in our culture. In fact, we're using the word meaning as a metaphor. We're talking about how the way the words fit together. So they fit my mind so I can fit the world. But most of your experience without language occurring is about, okay, how do things fit together? How do all of these experiences fit together? Right. And then how do they fit to me? Well, I can use this as a pencil, but I can also use this as a little spear. I can use this to stand for the letter I, right? What aspect, how does it fit to me? How do I fit to it? How do I use it to fit to the world, right? So if you're committed to intelligence, you're committed to meaning. Now, the advantage of that is the problem with the ant, right, because they're so stupid, is you either make millions of you and you just die all the time, and then you can't be very large, you can't be multicellular, um, and you're also sort of limited, although ants have, have evolved quite massively, right? But we, because of our general intelligence, And because of our capacity for meaning, we can go into different places. There's no environment on the planet or potentially off the planet that we can't live in. Because what we've invested in is we've developed that intelligence individually and collectively. So we make culture. We have this huge machine that helps us make meaning and lay out the world for us. And so if you were to ask me, would, would I give up all of that? It's like, no, I'd have to give up all of my agency. Um, I'd have to be something like an ant. And so, but your question is, but don't we suffer because of it? Yeah, that's the point I made. There is an inevitable interpenetration between the exercise of your dynamic intelligence and your your capacity to be to fall into self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. You can't have one without the other. They're inseparably bound together. So it's a curse. But the question, I guess, to ask is, is the curse worth it? And then that's the question, that's the existential question. Can we bring enough wisdom into our lives so the meaning in life is worth the suffering that we experience as we exercise our intelligence?
0: I thought that was a, a, an amazing answer. And um, we're definitely going to come back to much more of that later. Um, I just want to kind of go through this sort of problem um uh, but what's created the meaning crisis we kind of touched on it earlier as you know yeah. I mentioned and you mentioned Jonathan Pajo. he was just on the show um one thing was Jonathan and I, we spent a lot of time discussing was secularization this sort yeah. of push towards this new age of um the kind of the downfall of religion which we've seen um how has um secularization played a part in this what role has that played well that's an
1: awesome awesome question maybe even an awful question in the sense of being overwhelming um (laughs) not that it's not a good question to ask i mean the masterful work of like charles taylor on this is where i mean and his book is like this tome right his books because there's several books and other people and of course heidegger is wrestling with this is his central work and so i i feel a little bit wary of hubris here trying to uh answer this, so i so put it into context. Is me trying my best to join that company of people and give due credit to them. Um, so I think the rise of secularism is important, but uh, like how and why it arises is very interesting. Um, it's very much a piece of that pattern that I was just talking about. Every step along the way towards secularism is a step that we made for what looked like good reasons. We were solving problems, right? So, you know, in, uh, what is it, the middle of the, like, oh, I think it's the middle of the 11th century, the beginning of the 12th, we come up with a new script, a new, a better way of writing, or, uh, and we start reading things differently, right? And we go from reading aloud to reading in our head and, and that speeds things up dramatically, right? Uh, what's wrong with that? That solves all kinds of problems. Well. It does, but knows what it does. Whenever you're doing relevance realization, whenever you're solving a problem by paying attention to these things as relevant, you're considering other stuff as irrelevant, stuff that might have previously had a function. So now you're basically storing propositions in your in 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 in, in sort of in your into in, in what we now would call working memory, long-term memory. Right? So you say, well, why does that matter? Well, that matters because you go from thinking of reading as something you're sharing with uh, other people and between you and the text and therefore being largely transformative in nature. And that there, therefore there are truths that you can only get access to by you and the community going through transformation. That's bound up with this way of reading. You And you think about current practices like Lexio Divina or where people are chanting that right or even when we sing and we want to share it with other people we're hearkening back to that way of using language but now it's not like that now it's in your head and you're by yourself and now what you're doing is thinking what it, what's what, what 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 i'm really after is you know gathering these propositions together so they stick together well in my head because i'm trying to keep them in my mind well, that's coherence. And so now I'm going for a coherence between my propositions and what kind of coherence? Well, it's logical and you're getting all the work on logic, right? And what do you start to think? You start to think that you don't have to go through transformation. You just have to gather coherent information. And then that means, right, Do I need all of these institutions now to get me to what's ultimately most true or real? Well, of course not. Now that's not the only thing. That's just one thing. And what happens is you get you get something like that happens. You get you get uh, changes due to the bubonic plague and how people think of their station in life, uh, like th- and that and because they the bubonic plague opens up social mobility, the will becomes very important. But the world seems chaotic, so reason gets like they switch places in terms of which is more important. They're both there but they switch places and then the will becomes more central and we start to think of spirituality not as the completion of rationality but as the exercise of our will of our choice of of assertion well what would we be asserting well we'd be asserting these coherent sets of propositions in our head and then we get the movement towards ideology as the fundamental and you see how this spins off and all these things are oh that makes that was a good idea that was a good idea and th- and then we end up with right that we're in a position where we have a worldview that is this like, and I'm talking about, you know, go through the Renaissance and the Reformation and the scientific revolution, and you get this, you get this purely propositional, and I'm a scientist, so I love science. Let's, let's take that right off. But you get this purely propositional, theoretical structure, right? The truth of our propositions that our, we have a theoretical in that sense. I don't mean in the sense of not real. It's all theory-based. We have a theory, theoretical Worldview that does not only does it not require transformation, like right, like spiritual transformation, it doesn't require the cultivation of wisdom. We don't even belong in it, because right we have scientific explanations for potentially everything except how we generate scientific explanations. We don't fit into that scientific worldview. And and, and like, again, there's no cabal. There's no evil mustache villain. Every step along the way, people are doing things to try and solve problems. And and what's happening is there's this massive interconnection of things that erodes away the worldview. Now, Jonathan's right. I mean, I I have to speak as a scientist here because that's that's my relevant area of expertise, a scientist perhaps, as a philosopher. You know, the cultivation of wisdom my, uh, my RATA, uh, and also a former student of mine, right back f- uh, from, t- from high school, Johnson Kim, he's done research, he's, he's working towards his MA and his PhD, like good empirical research showing that if you belong to a religious tradition, you're much better at cultivating wisdom because it's you've got a home for the ecology of practices. You're not in this autodidactic, fragmented, you know, confirmation porn thing that people are often doing with their spirituality, right? you're better than the secular person. The evidence seems pretty clear about that. But you know what, the, what What it also shows? There's no significant difference between the religious positions, right? So if you're in Buddhism or Christianity, you'll do better than a secular person, but there's no advantage in being in Buddhism or Christianity. Now, Jonathan won't want to hear that part, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but but, but now notice, no, now notice the double-edged sword of secularism there. Because of secularism, because I can do this science without having to commit to a wisdom tradition, I can actually do this science. But the paradox is the science shows me that the secularism actually undermines the cultivation of wisdom that I'm studying and that I would ultimately like to
0: emulate and follow. It's really, really interesting. And I would love to pick up on a few things that you said. You talked about Buddhism and Christianity. Sure. Um, In terms of this meaning crisis, I spent a a substantial amount of time out in Nepal, um, out in Asia. At the time, they were the 30th poorest country in the world. Very, very poor country. But at the same time, when I was there, I was amazed by the sense of community, by how happy the people were. So I would love to know, in terms of this meaning crisis, how does it differ by culture are the west particularly suffering in comparison to the east how does that play yeah. across the globe? Well, yeah because we've separated things like we even
1: have these categories that, and we we invented them and then we think they're universal like we have this category religion <laughs> most cultures don't have a category they don't have a term for that there's no clear distinction between religion philosophy science right a good life culture they're all woven together uh, the west has done this thing again you say well it's just bad it's not bad we do things because we figure out when we analyze things break them into the parts we can figure out how the parts work and we can sometimes put the parts back together in a better way and that's a big part of but we pay a price for that so we solve a bunch of problems but what we do is we start to lose a sense of how important or relevant other things are that we're losing again this double-edged um, sword so it's not a coincidence, by the way, that what you've found it, it's generally the case that poorer cultures have higher meaning in life, and they tend to give more value to wisdom. And you might say, "Well, that doesn't make any sense." Well, it does because it only seems confusing because we have confused things together that should be and here I'm invoking something, right We should analytically distinguish them. So let's do that carefully. First of all, there's a we, between wealth and what's called subjective well-being. So subjective well-being is your sense of how, how, how sort of how good your life is in, like how contented you are with it. Do you feel like basically free? Are you getting enough pleasure, right? It's like, yeah, I like my life. That's subjective well-being. And what we've come to believe in the West is the way we increase that is by increasing wealth, right? We increase wealth, Will increase subjective so, and this is you know this is running through Pinker's Enlightenment now. Look at all my graphs for how material <laughs> wealth has gone up, right? And 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 it's just and it's just supposed not unfairly to him, but I think too simplistically by him that that's sufficient for subjective well-being. What the research shows is the relationship is more nuanced and curvilinear. Initially, changes in wealth make a significant impact on subjective well-being because you're getting out of poverty, right? But once you get out of poverty, reliably out of poverty, right? You have to make vast changes in wealth to make very small differences in subjective well-being, and, and we and we know this. And we even have artistic tropes about the people getting wealthy and then they they can't stop because they they've learned the lesson that wealth, right, produces, and so they just keep more. And more. what do you do after you have twenty million dollars? Oh, just more, right? and all that sort of stuff and we also know you've got you know your audience has probably heard the literature which is largely correct you know six months after people win the lottery their lives are just as miserable as they were before they won the lottery the reverse is the case the two you know six to eight months after people have a significant accident they're back to sort of their normal level of unhappiness right so wealth is not irrelevant to subjective well-being but it can't be confused with it so that's the first confusion what's the second confusion the second confusion is subjective well-being and meaning in life are not the same thing. They, they work in programs of different factors. I think Ryan and DC are lar- largely right about subjective well-being is how much autonomy do you have, how much competence do you have, right? How much sort of connection to the world do you have? And th- those are important. Meaning in life is very different. We talked about it before, those four factors. I'll give you the prototypical example of where the two come apart. And I've done this twice in my life and, and, you know, and the research backs me. And also you talk to anybody, I've had two kids, have a child, your subjective well-being collapses. You're tired, you're hungry, right? You're always wet. The food is always cold. There's an alarm bell going off all the time, tremendously stressful. That's a child crying. You and your partner, the relationship's breaking down and anybody who's honest with you will tell you like when you're about two months into this, you go, what have I done? Right. What have I done? What have I done? And then what happens? The child smiles at you. Right. And what's that doing for you? It's not doing it, but you're connected to something. You're mattering to something other than your own egocentric perspective. If you're a half decent parent, that is right. So your meaning in life goes up. And this is what people say. They have a kid because their meaning in life goes up. Their longevity goes down, their finances, everything collapses. Right. So we've confused wealth with subjective well-being, and then we've confused contentment with meaning in life. And those aren't the same thing. And when you're in a poorer culture, right, you compensate for right, subjective well-being and right and for wealth being much more precarious by ramping up the meaning in life machinery and ramping up the wisdom. Because one thing you can do is reduce your own self-deceptive, destructive behavior, connect to other people, be there for them, have them be there for you. And so meaning in life um, is much more prevalent. This is also why religious, and by religion, I mean something very broad that would include, I don't mean just worship. I think of Buddhism and Taoism also as world religions, many people do. So that's not controversial these but these cultures also tend to be more religious in that sense right they, they they care about wisdom they care about education not as how do i prepare for the market but how do I get one generation to help the next generation in the project of cultural cultural ratcheting up we are different from all the other organisms with culture we don't have to start afresh with every generation we can we can build and build and build and build and build and build and so Cultures that are, uh, I, I, I'm trying to not to use an, a, a pejorative word, but cultures that are less wealthy than us, maybe that's the away, tend to be more, they tend to invest more where they can, which is meaning in life. Um, and you can get quite a bit out of meaning in life, as my example showed with having a child. People, People will sacrifice wealth and subjective well-being if they have a real hope for increased meaning in life.
0: One thing that I would love to ask you about is when I was preparing for this, I was looking back through Joseph Campbell's work. and Joseph Campbell said, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. So I would love to ask you, is there a difference between being alive let's say being in a state of flow. And is there a difference between being engaged in the moment, feeling alive as Campbell says and living meaningfully?
1: Yeah. I mean, for one thing, uh, I mean, Campbell is, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, Campbell's basically an updated spokesperson for young and there's a lot there when he says experience of being alive, he doesn't mean just sort of biological sheer biological existence. Right. Um, you wouldn't be happy if I said to you, well, I can tra- change you into a tree and you'll you'll be alive for 600 years, but you'll lose consciousness and your personality and your sense of self. Will you take that deal? You go, no, I don't want to. I'd rather live for this shorter period of time with right being consciously. So Campbell means he's smuggling a bit in here. Um, and, and I don't want to besmirch a guy who's not here to defend himself. But I mean, I, I'm criticizing his ideas, not his character or anything like that. And he's also talking about the meaning of life, which, like I said, I don't, I don't, that, that's another one of the confusions, um, and that goes to some deep issues. We've tended to confuse making your life meaningful with finding your destiny or the meaning of life or like what the what the good life is. I don't think there is the good life. There are ways of becoming wiser, which can enhance your capacity to make your life more meaningful, have more subjective well-being, have the requisite amount of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so if we take it that what we're after then is meaning in life, then let's go back to the flow state, something I've done work on and published on, right? Um, well, what's happening in the flow state? Well, think about it. Um, this is the argument I made with Leo Ferraro and at Hara Bennett. Um, remember when I talked about that insight moment, that aha moment, right? And you go, aha, and that's like, it's like a flash Well, let's pay attention to the characteristics in the flow state. It's things are super salient. There's an ongoing sense of discovery. It it seems to be self-organizing, happening of its own accord, right? Well, the flow state is just an insight cascade, a bunch of insights sort of where you're, aha, aha. That's why things that provoke constant insight, like rock climbing, you have to reframe or you get stuck, right? Or jazz, we have to pick up the pattern and then you have to have an insight and right, right? Right. These are the things that are right inducing the flow state. The flow state's like this enhanced aha moment. It's also you know, an improvement in your, your your implicit learning, your ability to pick up on complex patterns in the environment. I can go into a lot about that too if you want to, because there's, that's really cool, but I won't get bogged in the detail. So the point I'm trying to make is flow is just this in, extended insight intuition Okay, what's that doing for you? Remember I talked about the dynamical coupling and how it's evolving, and that's what your intelligence is? Flow is just that running optimally. It's that sense of connectedness. That's why people feel at one, Why the ongoing sense of discovery. And notice what happens, and this is really interesting, that the, the fundamental lie of our narrative ego is that it takes credit for everything? There's a part of your brain that actually I did that, I did that. I, it confabulates all over the place, right? There's that, and, and and it's it's constantly telling you if you don't have me, you won't have agency. And the thing about the flow state is, in the flow state, that nattering nanny goes away because you're so absorbed in the world, you're so absorbed in the task. And what you what you see is you taste, you taste the freedom of an agency beyond the egocentric prison. So the connectedness and the coherence and you're getting into the depths of things, this is such a real experience and you're connected to and you're making a difference to an environment bigger than you. It's it's enhanced meaning in life machinery. So if you shift from the meaning of life to the meaning in life, you realize, oh, that's why everybody wants the flow experience. That's why everybody wants the flow experience. It's just that machinery running in sort of an optimal fashion. When Mahai published his work on it, uh, one of his earliest anthologies was called Optimal Experience. Flow is optimal experience, both in that people seek it out. They will seek it out even though it causes them pain. Rock climbing is insane. It's a punish- It's a Greek punishment from Hades. You climb up that rock face. As you climb up, you will hurt yourself. You'll scratch. You'll tire. You'll fatigue. You might fall and die. And when you get to the top, come back down. Well, why do people do it? Well, we interview them. We do it because when you're rock climbing, like you're framing and then you have to break that frame and restructure yourself, transform yourself on the fly to get to the next spot. And then you have to do it again and again and again. And you feel one with the mountain and et cetera, et cetera. Right? What I'm saying is it's an optimal experience. Not only then you pursue it as something different from pleasure and pain. So that's it's not subjective well-being; it's meaning in life, and it's optimal also an optimal experience because you're 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 working at your best. You're getting insight into complex implicit patterns, and you're on the fly evolving your cognitive and your sensory motor fittedness to the world. You, basically, what you're doing is you're like doing something like speeding up the process of evolution, and you're constantly evolving yourself to a constantly dynamically shifting environment. And that, and you better believe that we've evolved to reward that. It's like, hey, wow, reward that. So flow is just enhanced meaning in life. So I I think I've sort of split the difference between Campbell and the meaning. I don't think it's the meaning of life because I don't even know if there is such a thing. I don't think that makes much sense. Um, But it's not just being alive, right? It's this sense of being alive in a way that is making... Meaning, where meaning doesn't mean sentences or propositions. Meaning means this ongoing, active, evolving sense of connectedness. In flow, you're really connected to yourself, not to the story you're telling about yourself, but your agency. You're really connected to the world. And what's interesting about flow, the best thing in the world to get you into a flow state is another human being. Here's why. In a flow state, in order to have all that insight and intuitive learning, the demands have to be just beyond my my skills. So I have to constantly be stretching my skills to deal with it. That's what absorbs me into the thing. So if the environment is stable, I'll learn and eventually my skills will supersede the environment and I'll get bored. What I want is an environment that constantly ratchets up as I improve. That's why video games are so good for flow induction because they ratchet up as you improve right? So you're going through self-transcendence and the world is self-transcending and just do it together. And that's why they can be so addictive. But you know what else did that in an adaptive way, way before video games, other human beings, you're in a conversation and you, it's like jazz, you framed it, the person picks it up and reframes it and you go, Whoa, I hadn't thought of that. And then you have to meet that. And then, and then you just flow yourself up. And I'm really interested in that process where we get flow between us and within us
0: coordinated together. Yeah, it's really interesting. And when I think about the times when I've played a sport or done a salsa class yeah. or been on a hike or I've traveled, when I've been doing those and I'm in the moment, I'm not thinking, why am I here? Do I matter? I'm yeah. not thinking about any of those things. I'd love to come back to um, kind of, I think we've really covered this sort of problem part of the meeting crisis. I'd love to kind of touch on the solution side. So right. earlier you talked about, um, how you would instantiate it? Meaning through having two children. Um, yeah. Earlier, I was thinking about evolution, and I was thinking about some things that evolution has made advantageous. So clearly, it is advantageous to cooperate. We, mm-hmm. you know, if you do something altruistic, you will feel good. If you have children, as you mentioned, if you know, if you, if you do your job, yeah. you will probably feel good too. So, yeah. I would love to know what are some ways that we can instantiate some meaning into our lives.
1: Um, well, I mean, th- that's a very good question. Um, I'm doing work with Johnson Kim again, uh, Talia Rensidis, Philip Rizwick. We've on, on trying to. Sort of get all the literature together and the kind of things that will make your life more meaningful. Um, the, 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 our culture gives us sort of again help that also hinders. You know, having children um, it can make your life more meaningful. And, and so let me let me. The two thing are the two things we're trying to. So we have this huge thing of meaning that we need to cultivate because we're really complex, right? And we're trying to inherit all of our culture and pass it on. And we're, Oh, it's like, it's huge. And we used to have you know a vast ecology of practices in which people were doing many different things to transform themselves, to overcome the self-deception and enhance the connectedness. And there was with, with a huge collective and a tradition, and a culture, and you had all of this—you had know, God and culture and history and tradition. And then what we've done is we've decided we we'll, we'll, we don't have any of that, and we'll try and find it in two things: we'll try and find it in our romantic relationships, and in our families. Um. Now, romantic relationships are fa- and families are good things. Like they're good places for, you know, being connected to something beyond yourself, right? Uh, getting into collected flow states, I mean, right? But let's take a look at romantic relationships, right? Do they live up to their promise generally for most people? About 10% of people find their soulmate in the romantic world. That's a pretty low failure rate, actually. That's almost as bad as the diet industry. The diet industry only has about 5% success. And like the diet industry, you can sell a lot with romance. Like you can sell a lot of diets, but the diets largely fail. I I mean, I wish I had that success rate. I wish people would give me billions of dollars, and all I had to do was succeed 5% of the time. That would just be amazing. I'm held to a very different standard. Um, Romantic relationships are about that. Now, what you may say is, okay, but mine still works it does. And so there's another chunk of us that manage to get relationships and keep them going with sort of, you know, they're semi precarious and we're always working at it. And we find, and what we get to is you can ask people, this is, is your, is your relationship meaningful to yes, it is. Is it everything you hoped it to be? No, it's not. Um, and And so people, it's not, I'm not saying like people settle. Um, I'm not, I'm trying to say we, I think we're being unfair in our expectations. That's what I'm trying to say for romantic relationships. We're trying to get everything we used to get from God and religion and philosophy and culture, right? And art and like out of this person, like no human being can bear that. That, that. That's just enough. In a similar fashion, your family can't bear that. Now, family matters. It, it does romantic relationships, but our culture has basically, you know, do get enjoy your job. That's just subjective well-being. And then, when you're, once you're done your job, right, go home and be with your family or and your loved one, and that will take care of all the meat. And it, I'm sorry, it, it does. It, it's not sufficient. Those things are necessary, but they're not sufficient. So. What do you have to do then in order to make up for that lack Uh, first of all you have to consider stop confusing the intensity of a connection with its depth so we are entertaining ourselves to death think about the hours we're spending just keeping ourselves focused on something that is ephemeral the screens Right. And we know that this is bad for people's mental health. The research is just consistent and growing. This is bad. Uh, so you got to you got to think about <laughs> I realize I'm making a weird uh, self-critical. Pun. You have to go you have to go on a better diet <laughs> with your attention. Right. Get more nutritious attention. Well, what's more nutritious attention? you have to put attention into the aspirational project of undergoing self transformation look the processes of self deception are complex dynamical systems with many parts that's why when you're when you have self destructive self deceptive behavior and you know that it's self that's that's not sufficient for that's why people go into therapy. They know they shouldn't be doing X or Y, and they keep doing it. Well, why? Because the process is so complex and self-organizing, and you're poking at it with your one-shot intervention. I'll just change my belief. Good luck with that, right? Oh, my belief changed, yeah. And you poke you poke at this big hydra monster with your little knife of belief, and you stab one of the heads, and the rest of them all reconfigure, and it keeps going. That's why you have to do therapy. You have to do go into AA. You have to do all this other stuff. Here's what I'm saying. You've got this complex, you've got this complex dynamical system that is your foolishness. The only way you have a hope in hell of addressing it is to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system. That's what I mean by ecology of practices, a set of practices that are interlocked together in a system, like the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, the Twelve Steps, etc. We we keep doing this, and what they do is they interlock a bunch of practices in, in checks and balances. Strength and weakness. And this dynamical system, if you t- train it properly and coordinate it, can intervene simultaneously in parallel in your foolishness and plausibly make a difference. Right. So, you need, if you want to have more meaning in life, you need to cultivate wisdom. You need to cultivate an ecology of practices that is designed a bunch of practices, and they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses to reducing your self-deception, right? And, you, and, you, and we deceive ourselves in multiple various ways. You have to learn more about that. And also enhancing your sense of connectedness, get more flow states going, uh, more insight going, uh, m- more uh, where you are reflecting on the depths of things, the significance of things, rather than passively experiencing the intensity of things. We have lots of movies That are very intense. They're very intense. But the messages, what they teach us, the meaning of the movies is very shallow. The meaning often comes off like, you know, be loyal to your friends. Well, that's good. Right? That's a good that that is good. You know, and we should be reminded of that periodically. But you know, eight-year-olds sort of get that. Where do we have instead of intensity where we have, and we do have movies like this, I'm not saying we don't, but they're not, they're not prominent, right? where it's instead like, yeah, but what's going to make my life worth all the suffering that I'm going through? What's going to make it worth it to me? Because, you know, and here's the thing, it's a real possibility it might not be. That's why I don't believe in the meaning of life. Meaning of life, it's guaranteed, it's guaranteed that your life will be worth your suffering. No, it's not. Most of the wisdom traditions Say, no, it's not. Even Christianity, there's a narrow path and a broad path. The broad path is the path of destruction, right? It's not guaranteed that your life will be meaningful enough that it is worth living. And I know that sounds harsh because it sounds like John's saying many people's lives are meaningless. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm telling you, as as far as I can in answer to your question, that this is at risk. And the meaning crisis is showing that. Our life, right, we are perpetually on the precipice of despair. And so you have to start thinking about what are the practices that will reduce my self-deception and enhance my sense of being connected to things that are deeper and that are beyond just my egocentric preferences and cares. And you'll say, well, what's that? What's that ecology of practices look like? I can't, I can't give you an algorithm. It depends on who you are, where you are. I can talk talk about universals, about kinds of practices, like you should have a discourse practice, a mindfulness practice, you should have an active open-mindedness practice, you should cultivate various virtues. But I I can't, like, remember I said that that, that your intelligence is like an adaptation? Like, creatures are adapted to their environment. It doesn't mean the creatures all look the same. They're all the same in that they're all the same, you know, they're all, proce- they're all products of evolution and they're all adapted. But that doesn't mean the mosquito looks like the blue whale, right? The, the, like, right? So while well, I can point you to the processes and the principles of that process, like, you, you need to work that out. One last piece of advice, don't work that out just on your own right? The evidence is mounting, again, something that the wisdom traditions have said, the the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, you have to go to church, blah, 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 blah. That wasn't just for authority, and it, it is for authority, and people manipulated it. There's also that reason, go back to the research. Our best cognition is done in concert, in culture, in community, with other people in distributed cognition. Everything we're doing here right now, other than the atmosphere in our biological bodies, is the result of distributed cognition. I don't know how to make this webcam or build that computer or this TV or, the, you know, I didn't make the, you didn't make the bookshelf behind you. We didn't invent the English we're using, right? All, there's, everything's a huge network. So you have to do it in concert with other people and don't confuse having access to a network with belonging to a community in self-transformation people regularly confuse having access to information with cultivating wisdom so you got sloman's work on this you ask people do you know how the bicycle works oh sure sure you give them a basic diagram here's the you know the bar and the two wheels finish the diagram so that it will you know show up and nobody can do it and people oh i'll be able to do it okay maybe but nope how's a toilet work? Oh, I know how toilet works. I I do this and stuff goes away. Yeah, but how? People, this is called the the illusion of explanatory depth. People confuse, and the internet makes this worse. Access to information with the possession of knowledge and the cultivation of wisdom. So that's trying to give, I mean, the question you asked me was like, ah. So that's my best attempt to give a comprehensive answer of, of things you could do to pursue more meaning in life and i put out a lot of stuff on youtube to help people i like all of last year i did a daily meditation course i took people step by step to how to meditate how to contemplate then did all this stuff from sort of buddhist, buddhist Taoist traditions then took people through the western wisdom traditions epicureanism Stoicism, neoplatonism that's all there um, i am exemplifying this communitarian practice that i call Dialogos. logos i'm trying not to just talk about this stuff i'm trying to afford it and
0: exemplify it as much as I possibly can. If we are fortunate enough to acquire wisdom, how can we transfer it from the individual to the collective and for the greater good of society?
1: Yeah, so that's that's, that's the project I'm really interested in right now. Um, so I got interested in it because of something that Jonathan Pajot actually criticized before, for and also uh, Paul Vanderclay, two dear friends. Um, they said, you know, John's project seems to be very individualistic. And, and that is actually not in concert with uh, my, my understanding of cognitive science and how cognition actually works. I talked about distributed cognition. And I realized that. And then one of my other uh, great dialogue partners, Jordan Paul, said, you know, the ecology of practices needs a meta practice, needs a meta psychotechnology right, to coordinate. So you need something that's going to gather, curate, coordinate, and, you know, refine your ecologies of practice. Uh And it's like, well, what does that? Well, again, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you've going to have, you'll have exemplary individuals, you'll have teachings, but you also need, you need the community, the distributed cognition. And so what I saw happening, and I started to do a lot of participant observation in it, and a lot of reading about it, is that, uh, this is another symptom, a response to the meaning crisis, springing up all over the place are these discourse communities, these discourse practices, authentic relating, circling, empathy circling, insight, dialogue, inquiry, all of these practices in which the primary thing we're doing with language is not communicating, but communing. We're not so much trying to convert people as we are uh, trying to connect to them. Right. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, what's going on here? In the, so I was doing a lot of participant observation of that. And, of course, I've also been deeply, deeply, profoundly influenced by the whole Socratic wisdom tradition. And I thought, but this is what Socrates was doing. Socrates was doing this in Lancashire dialectic. He was doing this thing where he would get into discussion with other people. And the point, often the the, the dialogues, notice the name, by the way, don't come to a conclusion. They'll, 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 like, what is courage? And they'll do this thing. And, and and what Socrates does is he undermines two things simultaneously. And that's why he, he pisses a lot of people off. He undermines the authority of intuition. Your first person gut. I know what courage is. My gut tells me what courage is. And Socrates will go in and he'll just talk to, he'll ask them questions and they'll get to this state called aporia where they realize, I don't know what courage is. I've just been spouting bullshit. And, but he also undermines, he also undermines the technical authority. Oh, but I have the definition that I learned in institution X. This is what this is what courage is, and Socrates will go through and that they they haven't really they've just acquired the proposition. They haven't undergone the undergone the transformation that's needed to actually know what courage is, because you can only know what courage is ultimately by being courageous, and that's the only way you can recognize it. And so what I was realizing, okay, Socrates is doing this really interesting thing where he's trying to get people out of. Our normal, uh, our normal way of asserting authority and discourse. What's he doing there? What's he doing there? Why is he doing that? Why is he getting these people to that place? So I've got it on my wall. You know, one of his quotes, wisdom begins in wonder. See, and, and, and we tend to confuse these two things. Curiosity is for knowledge's sake. Curiosity is I've got a hole in my knowledge system. Oh, I what, what, what will fill it? And curiosity is a good thing because knowledge is a good thing. But wonder Wonder is a wisdom thing, because wonder isn't about filling in a hole. Wonder is about, wait, what? Wait, wait. Wonder is about calling everything into question. Wonder is the affordance of self-transcendence and self-transformation. That's why That's why if I pr- pr- provoke prolonged curiosity in you, you get, it's very averse. Imagine I gave you a detective novel and you could never figure out who did it, right? Ah, you hate that but we like to prolong and deepen wonder into the state of awe. And this is what Socrates is doing. He's getting people into, and notice awe, awesome, but also awful. It's put you on the horizon almost of horror because you're you're like, I don't know what courage is and I don't know if I'm a coward or not. And who am I really? Right. And so I thought, okay, Socrates is doing that. And then people are doing these practices. Can I use cognitive science? Right. And also my training in? a lot of these other wisdom practices, to get these two to talk to each other, the ancient Socratic tradition and and the modern emergence of these dialogical practices, these discourse practices. And so what's coming out of that is this project that I call Dialectic into Dialogos, and I'm doing it with Christopher Master Pietro and Peter Lindbergh and Jordan Hall and Guy Senstock, who invented one of the premier versions of this called Circling. You should have Guy on your show, by the way. I have Guy Senstock on your show. Uh, Strong recommendation, right? I'm um, also doing work with, and uh, well, I'll talk about that in a second, with Greg Enriquez. So, what's going on here, right? Is i was trying to think, and and when I was talking, when I, Guy and I have become good friends, and he's saying, you know, I, and I, my my thing is, I like what you do in circling, and what happens is, what happens in circling is, you're doing these practices where you're sort of bringing mindfulness of yourself and mindfulness of the other person because you're trying to connect as much as you can to you and connect as much as you can to the other person. And then all the people are trying to connect to the flow. You see the three connections of meaning there? Connecting to yourself, to other people, into the world. And you're trying to get a collective flow state. Remember we talked about how? And that flows and people get like, and it's amazing when you're in these. I've experienced it <clears throat> multiple times. People get into this. Oh, Thomas and Elizabeth are doing this also with Evolve in Germany. Some of their work's amazing. But when people get into this, people that are, Resolutely secular will start using spiritual religious language to describe what happens, right? So I was thinking, okay, what's going on here? Like, can we make a sense of this? And the idea is, I talked to a guy about this, and he said, I said, well, what's missing? You've got you've got this, you've got the flow, but you don't have the philosophia. You don't have the brotherly, the community love of wisdom. You're just flowing. People are doing it for the intimacy of connection, but that it stops there. And instead, what, what you want is you want that intimacy with emerging intelligibility. That's why you're undermining authorities, right? These t- normal discourse authorities, because you're trying to let right new stuff emerge, right? And that's wonderful. And people are are, are are getting intimate with emergence, but they but that's it. But what they could do is that intimacy with emergence, the emergence of new intelligibility, new insight, new perspectives, new ways of being and seeing, that can be coupled to the cultivation the it, that intimacy can become the shared philia love philia of sophia of wisdom there's no philosophy not in the academic sense but in the cultivation of wisdom so i'm working with guy and chris uh, and to well how can we take something like circling and how can we modify it bring in more and more socratic elements step by step until people are not only getting into the flow state, but that flow state is getting them to flow towards wisdom. The practices you can do, the the, the skills you can do, there's dialectic. And I, I like to separate these two terms for the reason. Dialectic is something you can do. You can cause dialectic to happen. But dialogos is if the thing catches and takes on a life of its own. So the logos, that's where we get the word logic from. It's also in like anyology. Psychology is the logos of the psyche, right? It's the and logos, especially the, for the Neoplatonists, it's a dynamic principle of self-organization that makes things make sense. It makes things and makes sense. It's right. And so what happens is there's a logos that takes shape, right? And it's interesting. Everybody talks about it. They talk about they talk about the we space. In addition to everybody that there's there. They're, because they're in this shared flow state, there's the dynamical system of emerging intelligibility that, that, they, that they all experience collectively, but they don't individually own or generate, right? It's, it's almost like a purely secular seance or something like that, right? <laughs> and what's going on, right, is that emergence, right? That logos, if it catches, dia logos, and you're willing to dia by means of, it, if you're willing to follow it, right? and reflect upon it, and bring virtues to bear on it, it can become, philo- that that flow can become philosophia. So what, 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 what can you do? The way an individual can use their intelligence to become more rational, become less self-deceptive, and ultimately use their rationality to become wise, which is rational in many different domains, many different kinds of knowing, individually, we can use dialectic to engender a dialogos in which we are flowing, not not just getting our intelligence flowing, but flowing our intelligence towards collective wisdom. And the idea is that collective wisdom is the best thing we have for giving us something beyond ourselves through which we can challenge and correct ourselves as we try to create individually and collectively our ecologies of practices. And so the dialectic is the practice and the process that takes on a life of its own. If it doesn't take on a life of its own, it's not the logos. It's not the logos. It's not the spirit. It has to blow as it will, as Jesus said. Socrates said he was willing to always follow the logos wherever it would go. Right? If it doesn't take on a life of its own, it won't help to give you life. If you hold on to it as something you're making, then it can't afford you transcending yourself. So you can do dialectic, but that can afford or engender logos and then that that collectively living wisdom is there to guide us as a meta psychotechnology in the co- in our individual and group creations of ecologies and practices that's the idea and that's what dialectic was in the whole Socratic Neoplatonic tradition it was considered the ultimate practice uh, precisely because it got you into this state um, there's a lot more i could say there but i'm going to stop because i've just been talking for a long time about it but um the, uh, and so th- this is what i'm most interested in right now oh i wanted to say one more thing sure. so we're, we, we, we've been doing that and i'm doing a new series with uh greg Enriquez and christopher master pietro called the elusive eye the nature and function of the self it's elusive i with a capital i because the self is one of the the thing we talk about all the time and and socrates would come in and say well what is yourself what is a self and you go your intuition i know what it's oh really that falls apart oh well you know science oh that falls apart right because the self is an existential thing right it's like a virtue so we're going through that and what we're doing is we're, we're, we're and we're doing it together we're figuring it out it's a new way of presenting material rather than presenting it as a monologue it's a it's an ongoing flowing dialogue we're trying to get integrated the linear presentation of an argumentation step by step that we're and and then if you'll allow me the flowing right dialogos around it and get them woven together like you had in the platonic dialogues and i think we're making some good progress we're getting some good feedback on it um and so that's that's something i'm currently trying to it's it's of course clunky um but it's getting better um and, and and people are really resonating uh with it and people really like I, I, wanna, I, I wanna use this also to break up the mythology of, of the single individual genius producing their wonderful insights that will save humanity. Uh, uh, it's really important to see that ideas are best, ideas, not just ideas, roles, identities, perspectives are best generated in concert, think about music, in concert with other people. Uh, and So I, I wanna try and exemplify that as much as possible.
0: Where can these guys connect with you and check, check out your work? Um,
1: so, I, I mean, I've got a YouTube channel. They can see the Awakening for the Meeting Crisis series. Um, I have an ongoing dialogical series called Voices with Raveki, where I attempt to get into dialogos with people. I have um, two series where I'm tr- where with, uh, with other people, I'm trying to integrate argumentation with dialogos uh the world not that's on the nature of consciousness sort of trying to integrate the best uh cog sci we have on consciousness um and then the one i just mentioned there's a a new series called the elusive eye the nature and function of the self um and i mean if people want i mean i've got stuff published if they're interested in the more academic stuff but that's that's the best access and then if you want to move beyond the theory and you should i have on YouTube. You can either go through the day by day because all the videos were recorded or you can just do the lessons because the lessons were like once every week or uh, once every two or three days. I've got the meditating with John Vrveiki, meditation, contemplation, mindful movement practices, and then cultivating wisdom with John Vrveiki. So the Eastern traditions, I don't like these adjectives, but we don't have better ones. the Eastern wisdom traditions, the Western wisdom traditions, actual training in all of them, and actual guidance, design principles about how you would collate them together and coordinate them together, curate them together to make an ecology of practices. And then associated with that, I have a Discord server, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I think there's about a 2,000 member community, and they're doing a lot of these ecologies of practices. Um, and if so if you want, so there's the courses, and then there's a community like a sangha,
0: you can join. Um, so there's lots there. John, you've brought so much value today. I followed you for a long time. I'd love your work. I'm sure our audience are going to get so much out of this. You're, you're a real force for good. So, man, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'll, I'll, uh, I do aspire to it, so maybe that's what I'll say. Um, thank you. I, I've really in, in, enjoyed it a lot. Um, like I say, you've had Jonathan on. I think that's great. I think you should... Uh, um, you should have Guy on. Uh, I think Guy will be. <laughs> if if I'm if I'm sort of more Yang, and uh, right and because that's what people say, uh, Guy is more Yin. But man, you'll find your like my, my my one of my criteria for dialogos is if both people get to places they couldn't get to on their own. That's the that's the main thing right? It's the opposite of the entrenched positions fighting with each other, right? And Guy will get you to places you couldn't get to on your own, and you won't even realize it's happening. And he's really, really cool.